Welcome, everybody, and those of you online. It might be remote, but there is a possibility we're going to finish Galatians today, so we'll, we'll see. Wow. The way this class goes, I doubt it, but we'll see. Uh, but we are nearing the end. This is not a difficult chapter. Let me, let me remind you of just the basic argument of the book. Paul is dealing with a group of people. We are calling them Judaizers. That's not a New Testament term, but that's a term that most expositors gives. People are trying to fuse faith in Christ with keeping the Jewish law. Want a more complete sanctification? You need to keep the law. More complete justification? You need to keep the law. Paul is outraged at this idea, and the first two chapters he tries to deal with one of their accusations that he's not really an apostle. If he's not really an apostle, he has no authority, don't listen to him. He shows that he is. Three and four, he shows, uh, I think you agree, masterfully, the theology of justification by faith plus nothing else. And then in chapters 5 and 6, which we are right in the middle of, is dealing with the more practical aspects. They said you need to keep the law to have a more complete sanctification. He says no. The key to a complete sanctification is the Holy Spirit, sign of the new covenant who empowers you and enables you to produce his fruit, those non-quality traits which we spent almost two class hours going over. So, the, the the message of justification by faith produces not only the position of righteousness or identity, but the practice of righteousness, chapter 5. Chapter 6, he makes a second argument. Not only does the, the more complete sanctification that comes from the Holy Spirit produce a life of righteousness, it also produces a life of service, where you serve others. So he begins, and that's how I'm going to break this, this chapter, chapter 6, into its respective parts. The first, deal, and this is only in verse 1, but the restoration of a fallen brother or sister. Look at the verse. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit or with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That's one verse, but there's a lot in that verse. First of all, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's, a, that's actually a wonderful Greek term. It, it's, it's wonderful. It is the image of a runner. It's the image of a runner who is running toward the goal. And as that runner is running toward the goal, something overtakes him and knocks him off course. <clears throat> so when Paul uses the term caught, that's, that's just think of, think of the imagery. That's a wonderful illustration of sanctification. You're running toward the goal of becoming transformed into the image of Christ. But something knocks you off course. So you're caught. You're trapped. You're not where you want to be. Well, what do you do? This isn't about losing your salvation. What's it about? Getting back on the track of sanctification. So what do you do? You who are spiritual, the Greek word is pneumatikon. You are spiritual. What does that mean? Well, in the context of chapters 5 and 6, that's not that hard to figure out. You who are spiritual. You who are serious about spiritual life in terms of the nine quality traits of the fruit of the Spirit. You who are serious about your walk with the Lord. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Paul's not creating two levels of Christianity. There's the super spiritual people and then there's everybody else. That's not what he's saying. 
He's not talking about the elite who have made it, who have been to monasteries for 10 years, now you're in. That's not what he's talking about. You are a spirit. You are serious about your walk with the Lord, and you are manifesting the fruit of the spirit. Not perfect. You're, 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 you've grown. You who are growing, take that person who's been trapped, caught, knocked off track, and restore them. He said, that's, again, that's a wonderful word, restore. The Greek word, the original Greek word in Attic Greek was, it was a term used for repairing fishing nets. I mean, just think of that. You know, you don't throw the fishing net away. What do you do? You repair it. Fred didn't throw his car away because it didn't work today. He's going to get it repaired. I'm assuming I'm saying something that's accurate there. But anyway, but so it's that idea. You restore. It, this, this verse has nothing to do with loss of salvation, nothing to do with anything that's jeopardizing your position. Every one of us will fall and struggle and fail in our walk with the Lord. You who are spiritual, more mature, those who are who are walking in and by and with the Holy Spirit, seek to restore that person, repair that person, fix their necks, so to speak. But then he issues a little, it's, it's, it's actually quite wonderful, a little warning. That warning is, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there is a, there's a caution. You guys who think you're spiritual giants, be careful because you too can fall. You too can stumble. So it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful reminder of how, sorry about that, how the church is supposed to function. Those who were all in this walk of sanctification together, when someone stumbles, gets off the path, we reach down, pick them up, and restore them. Put your arm around them, help them, encourage them, etc. With always the, the the concern, take the warning seriously. Be careful, be watchful, lest you too stumble and fall. One other point about verse six, uh, verse one of chapter six. This is the goal of discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, which is our fullest count of that instructions of Jesus, remember what he says there? He establishes four steps or four stages. He says, um, when someone falls into sin, and the, the term there is a, a defiant, intentional, egregious decision to sin. You, you guys go, you go to that person, you talk to that person. And you you encourage that person to deal with their sin. If they don't listen to you, take two or three. That's step two. Take two or three other people. If that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. You make it an issue of the church. That doesn't mean it's a public meeting. You call everybody together. That guy has just sinned. He's in danger. And that's not what, no. It becomes an issue where the church is praying, encouraging, and working with this young person or whoever it is, actually. And if that doesn't work, step four is you ask them to leave the church. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says it is really serious that you deal with this. And he uses the proverb, because a little leaven leavens all alone. If you allow this defiant sin to exist, it can affect other people. Verse 1 of chapter 6 is the goal of discipline. 
It's not punitive. It's not to punish. What is it? To restore them. Do you understand these sentences I just was talking about? What I just say makes sense? Connecting Matthew 18 with Galatians 6, the illustration of 1 Corinthians 5 with Galatians 6. When Paul instructs the Corinthian church, in your church, you're allowing, you're permitting, you're, you're condoling, you're, you're, you're giving approval of a young man living in an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. You're allowing that to happen? Paul says, go, discipline. And if he does not listen, ask him to leave. And that's when I had a proverb I quoted, a little 11, 11, a whole lot. But when you get into 2 Corinthians, then, which would be approximately 18 months later, Paul addresses that issue. You guys are too hard on him. You're not letting him back into the church. You're not giving, you're not restoring him to fellowship. Knock it off. Restore him. Galatians 6.1. The goal of discipline is not punitive. It's restorative. It's exactly like when you deal with your children. None of you have children anymore. You're all too old, like me. But your children or grandchildren, by the way, isn't it interesting as a grandparent to deal with discipline issues with your grandchildren? When that when mom and dad aren't there, you can deal with it. When mom and dad are there, he's uh, do you allow them to do this? You know, Peggy Peggy is really a master at this. I just say you can't do it. Make sure it's okay with Jonathan and Irene or Joanna and you know our, our two two kids and Andrew to make sure that what you're doing is okay with them. And I have to be reminded she's really right. But I still will say, George, knock it off. You're not supposed to do that. Hey, Jim, you know, on the like the graphic example of this kindness that seemed like to me is that prisoner can form the person that really needed his wounds. Help and, and he needed lodging because he couldn't travel well, and so he paid for that. And he said, Whatever he was, I'll take care of it. It's sort of a gentle spirit of restoration and really caring about what happens to that individual. Yeah, that's true. And within the body of Christ, where that we are brothers and sisters, we're part of the family of God, we should treat one another in that way. To seek their good, to seek to restore, to seek to care. And this is why chapter 6 is such an important chapter in Paul's writing. Because he's getting at those areas where we're not necessarily interested or concerned about other people to that degree. Paul says you should be concerned. So then, okay, got that? So your, your essay for next week is... Connect Galatians 6.1 with Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. That's, that's your son. To show both the method and goal of discipline. Discipline, it, the Greek word for discipline is always restorative, never punitive. Now this next verse, verse 2, fits with, but is different from, what he's been talking about in restoring someone who falls, stumbles, gets off the track in their walk with the Lord. To what degree, I'm going to use the words from Genesis 4, to what degree am I my brother or sister's keeper? Remember that? You know, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? You know, when concerned about Abel. Where's Abel? Well, am I my brother's keeper? You know, I don't care. I'm not responsible for Abel. Well, 
in effect, he is. And you know what happens there. So what Paul does now is he says, now listen, bear one another's burdens. That's in the imperative mood. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a piece of advice. It's a command written to other believers. As you who are spiritual are concerned about those who stumble and fall and get off the path of obedience to the Lord, you also should be concerned in bearing one another's burdens. Now, before I finish that verse, so before I get to that, this is one of, and there are clusters of these in Paul's writings, this is one of the one another passages. There are a number of those, love one another, bear one another's burdens, care for one another. It's, they're called the one another passages in Paul's writings. And so here it's bear one another's burden. Now, immediately one another means we're in a community together. That community is called the Church of Jesus Christ. And that community called the Church of Jesus Christ, we're burden bearers. And the term burden there, it, it's, again, it's kind of a unique term, but its special emphasis is on spiritual burdens. Now, as you're going to see in the verses that follow, he does also talk about financial and material burdens. But the special emphasis here is on spiritual burdens. Now, if you know someone that is struggling with temptation, someone that is struggling with moral or spiritual failure in their life, that's what he's talking about. Bear one another's burdens. Come alongside and support and encourage and help a brother or sister in Christ who is experiencing spiritual burden, spiritual failure, spiritual stumbling in their walk with the Lord. That's part of the one another nature of the church. I, Paul writes in another passage of scripture, we, when someone is joyful about something, we all rejoice with them. When someone is in sorrow about something, we're in sorrow with them. So that's what he's talking about here. Bear one another's, and I'll insert an adjective, bear one another's spiritual burdens. So I'm going to be talking about material and financial burdens in a minute. But bear one another's spiritual burdens. See, this is why it's so important with brothers and sisters in Christ that we're open and transparent. And it's why, and this is so effective, it's very effective in our church, but you know, they're often called small groups or uh, you know, people give them all different kind of names. But you know what I mean by a small group, don't you? you? You have a group of people in your fellowship where you just meet with them once a week, once every two weeks, something like that. And that's it. You meet with them. You're studying scripture together. You're praying together. You're sharing. You're, you're supporting each other. And in, we, we call them our life groups at our church. And they're, they're that, that conducive to the transformational life that's a part of sanctification. We need each other. And it's a way to facilitate that. So, and we, we know this from just countless testimonies. This is real. This, in those little small groups, those life groups, our church, this is where Galatians 6 is really working. This is where it's really working. 
where you have a group of, you know, 10, 11, 12 people really supporting and encouraging, bearing one another's burdens. And that, that, that's what Paul's saying. The law that the Judaizers are demanding you add to your faith and trust in Christ through his spirit. You, you don't need the law. Because he says, when you bear one another burden, you fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is what Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. And so in James, by the way, when you study James, you're going to see the same, James will say the same thing. He will use the phrase, the law of Christ. That the church is known. The church is known for its support and encouragement and care for one another because they fulfill the law of Christ. So you see what Paul's doing. He's turning the Judaizers' argument on his head. By the life of service, you are fulfilling the law. You don't need the law to, to make a more complete sanctification. With the Holy Spirit and his enabling power, you have what you need, and you will thereby be fulfilling the law of Christ. It's a fantastic it's a fantastic way of jabbing at the Judaizers. And it's very effective in what Paul's doing. Isn't that a two edged sword? It cuts right to the heart of things that the Christians on it does. cuts the Pharisees out of. It does, yeah, it does. And this is historically in the last 2,000 years. A chapter like chapter 6 is what has marked Christianity in comparison to all the other world religions. It really has. What I mean by that, when you, when you study how Christianity comes into a community, you can see that in the first century with Paul, but even later on, as it comes into, it comes into a community and people come to know Christ, and in five years, what you see in that community, you see a community transformed. Now, I don't mean every single person in a village or a town or city, but it, 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 it's making an impact. And it, it's making an impact on meeting of physical needs, meeting of material needs, meeting of spiritual needs. Because there's a core group of people who are representing Christ and doing it. That, I've told you about this book before. It's kind of a big, thick book, although some of you might want to read it. Uh, a British historian named Tom Holland has written a, a book called Dominion. It has a long subtitle. But what he's doing through the book, and it, again, it's a thick book. What he's doing through the book is he's showing Christianity was a revolutionary movement in Western civilization and indeed in the world. And he starts with the first century, then he goes to the second century, and he goes to the third century, and he shows what is happening to the old Roman Empire as it is collapsing and being replaced by this new institution, the church, and how the church, the church is revolutionizing everything about the Greco-Roman world. That doesn't happen in one year, but when you look at it over 300 years, which is how he starts the book, you really see an entire civilization transformed. Why? Does it come from the emperor of Rome issuing a decree? No. It comes from thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And over years of time, this is transforming them. As they are transformed, communities are transformed. And that's why we, even in 2023, as we are looking at politics, we have to make sure we've, we don't have blinders on. Having Congress pass a law is not going to change people. 
It may force them to do something, but what changes people is the gospel. And it's the gospel changes people. That's what changes culture. And I'm, and I'm not just saying that dogmatically. That's biblical, but it's also historical. You can pass all the laws in the world. It doesn't affect people's heart. Jesus changes their heart. Then everything starts to change. That person's life and their families change. And then their neighborhoods change, et cetera, et cetera. So how did we fall into the dark ages? Pardon me? How did we fall into the dark ages? You know, about the 10th, 11th century. We just, the whole, everything he's just said fell apart. Most historians, well, I'm I'm, uh, hesitating a little bit, Bill, because you've asked a very profound, important question. Most historians today would would probably not use the phrase dark ages anymore. Middle. That's why it became more appropriately known as the Middle Ages, between the ancient world and the modern world. The dark ages, which again, I'm not sure that's the right phrase, but it's a period not religiously dark, but politically and economically dark, because what had happened was a unified civilization collapsed, i.e. the Roman Empire, and was replaced by localized small entities that are spread. There's nothing unifying. In 800 AD on Christmas Day, Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, and he began to try to reconstitute a centralized empire. And that lasted until 1804 when Napoleon dismantled it. But the Holy Roman Empire, as one person said, was neither holy nor was it Roman, but it was an empire. (laughs) But it was an attempt to do that. So, Bill, the Dark Ages were more, and that's not the Middle Age, the medieval period, is a period of decentralized, localized control and administrative, and it's by feudalism and manorialism and other kind of thing, that is not centralized at all. So it's so diffused, so decentralized, but religious faith is still very important to teach people. But you don't have that centralized. And then tragically, and this also may be what you're getting at, tragically, though, during this period, is the Roman Catholic Church becomes institutionalized and extremely powerful. Because it's the only entity that everybody, if you live in northern, uh, well, now it'd be United Kingdom, but Scotland, or you live way over in the Middle East, everybody would recognize Roman Empire. When it collapses, what's left? Well, over the next 500 years, what replaces that is the Roman Church. And whether you're in northern Scotland or in the Middle East, you recognize the Roman Church. The Roman Church is the only thing I know, because I pay my tithes to the priest, and the priest in my parish pays his tithes to the drone. Oh, that's okay. That's the only thing. And then that centralized church becomes more and more powerful until 1517, Luther comes on the scene, and that falls apart. So, Bill, thank you for asking that question. I was able to go on a wonderful anybody wants to talk about this, Bill. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I have a question about the law of Christ. Um, yes. The, you've made connections to um, uh, several other uh, uh, pieces of scripture. And yes. when I look up the word law, it is very uh, generic in um, term. If, if you put the phrase together, if I'm doing a study, how do I connect all these pieces together? Are they congruent 
or is there something I'm trying to build a bridge between this and you know the other places that you've um, indicated? It might be a little technical of a question, but well, I would start. Yeah, I, I follow you, Russ. I would start really with the words of Jesus. Uh-huh. And I, I would start with the, the upper room discourse, which is John chapter 13 and John chapter 14 and into John chapter 15. When Jesus, where Jesus says a new commandment, uh-huh. the word's commandment, but you could say a new law I give unto you, that you yep. love one another, and so on. And so you begin to see that ethic that Jesus is laying down that he calls this new commandment. James calls it the 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 royal law of love we will read about that next week here paul calls it the law of christ that that is that commandment which is centered on christ that has as the chief ethic of love it's the principle and ethic of love and jesus will say they will know you're my disciple how will people know you're my disciple because you love one another when you love one another and that's a godly love right that ethic becomes that if I'm not sure I want to put it this way, but I'll loosely put it this way, that new ethic of love becomes the new law. And that's and super, that's, and that's why Jesus was asked the question. You remember this in, in Matthew and Luke both mm-hmm. recorded. Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? You remember what he said? Yeah. He didn't go through the Ten Commandments. He said, love God and love God. people. Yeah. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love people as your neighbor. And so, all, so Jesus is saying, what I am representing is not inconsistent with the law of Moses. The law of Moses has been perverted and distorted. I'm trying to get it back to what it really purpose, purposely was supposed to do. So, Russ, that's how I would start approaching that. And, and that's agape love, right? Correct. Agapo. So, okay. and, that, and God is love, 1 Corinthians that, 13. It, that's, that's how I understand it ties together. Yes. Okay. Well, even First John chapter four, where John the writer twice in that same chapter says, "God is love." Yeah. It's predicate nominative. God yep. is, is love. He represents, manifests, shows He is, is love. And so, I mean, all of that, all that is networked together into the ethic, the fundamental ethic of biblical Christianity is love. Mm-hmm. And you explained that last week. Love of the Father and the Son. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I actually learned something about that. I'm glad. <laughs> you, you get, my, my wife still hands out her friends. They, they, my wife is in a Bible memory group. She, they do it over the phone, and they're holding each other accountable. Every time one of the gals gets, she gives them the next time a little gold star. So, Bill, I'm going to give you a gold star. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, let's can, – can I go on here? Let's – Go into verse 3 and verse 4. These things are all connected together. Okay, we are spiritual. We have the responsibility of bringing people back on the track of obedience, restore them. Verse 2, we bear one another's burden and thereby fulfill love, the law of Jesus. Then he says, notice this. He's now dealing with our motivation in carrying out verse 1 and verse 2. Our motivation. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That's that's really interesting, isn't it? That after the challenge to restore people when they get off the track and to bear one of those burdens, he takes a two-by-four and slams you against the head. Because what he's saying is the great enemy of love and spiritual maturity is conceit. 
Notice his words. If anyone thinks he's something, when actually he's nothing, now what does he mean by that? He's focusing on, you know, the person who, who you know, been to every Bible study there possibly is, hasn't missed a Sunday sermon 42 years, and stands with his sons and his suspenders and says, I am really a super spiritual giant. Who wants me to help him? Is that the spirit of being a burden bearer? Is that the spirit of seeing? No. Humility is the mark of a burden bearer. I'm not helping you because I'm superior to you. I'm helping you because I love you. And he says, if you think you're something when really you're nothing, you deceive yourself. Go ahead. That's, that's exactly right. That's, or the, the cemetery is full of, um, is full of absolutely essential people. <laughs> right. That's a good one. I've not heard of that. That's a good one. That's a good one. But you, you, you can see that, you know, conceit and pride is a real enemy of spiritual growth in the church. And this is, this is one of the dangers it really is, it's one of the dangers of having in your mind developing the idea that there are some people who are really spiritual and then there's me. There's some people who, they're far better along than, than I am, so I'm kind of inferior. No, no, that, that's, we're all in this together. And Paul says conceit, pride, superiority, the idea that I'm some is is devastating. And then the word he uses is the same word that's used to Satan, who's the master deceiver. He says, deceive himself. And so again, as he did at the end of what verse was that? At the end of verse one, keep watch lest you be tempted. Here again, as a little warning. A burden bearer must be very careful that the burden bearer isn't motivated by pride, superiority. Humility is the mark. Let me rephrase that. Humility is one of the marks of spiritual growth. Because you really realize, I'm not something. I'm nothing. But I become something because of the grace of Jesus. He is the one that's something, capital F, not me. And so it's just, it's it's a delightful, it's a delightful warning. So then he says in verse four, he goes to the other fact factor about motivation he says okay how do you make sure that you're not deceiving yourself with pride and conceit verse four but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor so that 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 testing your own actions testing listen the greek word there is very simple it's actually not a terribly difficult word but the, the, the thought here, the idea here, the instruction here is check your motives. Why are you doing this? Test your own work. Then your reason to boast will be in himself alone, not his neighbor. You're not doing this. You're not doing this for other people to notice you, pat you on the back, say, you're really great. You must be some sweet. You must read the Bible at least an hour a day. To be able to do all you're doing, that's fantastic. And Paul says, no. Test yourself. To me, this is one of the greatest challenges 
for someone that gets into some kind of spiritual leadership because you can start to develop the, the idea, the sense that, hey, you know, I'm really something. Swindoll used to tell us, Howard Hendricks used to tell us, those men were associated with the school I went to, don't listen to your own tapes. Now we don't have tapes, so what would it be? Don't listen to your own MP3. Don't listen to your own CDs. Don't do that. And, you know, I've thought about that a lot because I honestly, and I mean this before the Lord, I have never, ever listened to one of our own messages. And the, because of what those men said, because you can develop, you know, that's pretty good. That was a really good message. I won't listen to another one. Am I really that good? You know, and that is just, that is the most dangerous thing because your motivation, test your work, your motivation. You talked about humility in effect in the previous verse. Now test it. Why am I doing this? Whose glory am I seeking? Whom am I boasting in? Jesus or me? And so Paul, this is, these, are, these are marvelous verses as checks in what we do and more importantly, why we do what we do. Our culture seems to reward and affirm a narcissistic pride. That should not be in the church. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to be blunt, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be in the church. We're in this together. And the other danger of this is we, we can kind of do it. Well, my pastor's up here, and everybody else is down here. I know my pastor and, and, and the guys that work with me on the staff. Uh, we are constantly talking about that. That is not the right way. That is not how we want this church to be. So you have to constantly be checking that stuff to make sure that does not characterize your leadership team. And so it's just it's a simple but very, very important to keep checking. I know I've given you these things. I, I've done it, I think, at least twice over the years. But I have a series of questions. When I was in leadership, I would ask the people that work for me in leadership. Do you remember those questions? I, I know I gave them to you. Let's start. You assume that we have a memory long Okay, well, <laughs> well. Anyway, there there are questions that that focus on the the things you're thinking about, the things you're doing, and it even gets into personal morality issues about you know, did I spend time with a woman alone? It was not my wife. That's one of the questions. I mean, just those kind of very important questions to to get at get at why am I doing what I'm doing and how am I doing what I'm doing for the glory of God or for my own self because it's a constant check. And it's not only for men, it's for women too, but especially for men, because mostly I work with men. And just this, this testing of your, checking yourself constantly, being brutally honest with yourself about why you're doing what you're doing. That's what Paul is getting at. Because he says in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Different word. The word there is not load. That's why ESV is translated load. It's not the same word as burden that you see in the previous. It's not the same word. The idea is you, each one of us, you and me, each one of us is accountable for our own actions. I'm not accountable for your actions. You're not accountable for my actions. 
But because I'm accountable for my actions, I'm going to make sure, verse 4, I'm testing why I do what I do. Because someday I'm going to stand before Jesus. He's not going to evaluate me for salvation, but evaluate me for rewards. And so these five verses are quite, really quite marvelous verses in how a church is to function. How the interpersonal caring and burden bearing and love and restoration is to work in the body of Christ. It's a unique institution because it's one, of course, that's created by Jesus for his purposes in this, in this age. So um, are you with me? Any questions? Uh, Rob, you had your hand up there. Yeah. So the implication of verse 5, using a different term than burden, although, does that imply that not all loads especially your own load, should be a burden? Should, should you be bearing it without grunting, so to speak? I don't know if I'm communicating what I'm saying. Should it be a burden, or should it be just part of life that you okay. graciously and find not to be a burden, but not to be a, 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 a suffering? Okay, I think I got what you're saying now. Um, yeah, in, in a way, um, that you have a load to bear, I'm, I'm putting the two together, but I'll still do it. That you have a load to bear is not unusual. It's your responsibility to make sure you're carrying your own load. I'm not going to give Ed my load. Now, I'm in a real difficult spiritual struggle. It's all right for me to say, Ed, can you help? Will you pray for me? Will you support what I'm doing? And with your prayer and your encouragement, yes, glad to do it. But, you know, it, so that's, a, that's really a, a good, insightful comment, Rob, that it, we have the responsibility to deal with our own individual struggles. There are others, but I first have that responsibility. And that's what he's really saying. You own the responsibility to bear your load. I want to tell you something that's bothered me this week because it happened Sunday. A good friend of mine, really, I, I'm still struggling with it. A good friend of mine has a son. This friend of mine is in his, he's about 70. He has a son who's 46, and he has been, he's a mess. He lives out in Oregon. Just a mess. Alcohol, drugs, he lost his family, lost his kids. And, uh, He's been in and out of halfway houses, in and out of hospitals. He doesn't care. He knows his dad will bail him out. My friend is going to bring his son to Omaha and told him, I'm going to give you an apartment for three months, but you have to, you have to meet it after four months. You have to what? You have to meet the rent after three months. He, he needs to go to you're a, going to get a job. You're going to be responsible. You're going to totally change your life because the last 15 years, every game he gets in trouble, he calls his dad. His dad mails him a check. And almost always his dad said, this is the last time I'm going to do it. Jim? The first time he said that was eight years ago. Yeah. So in bringing his son to Omaha, I said to him, are you going to allow him to live in your own house? He said, oh, no, I'm going to give him this apartment, three months, and then he's going to respond. I said, what are you going to do 
if he doesn't pay his rent, he shows up on your front porch. This guy isn't 10. He's not 16. He's 46 years old. So I ask him this question. From your vantage point, what does tough love look like for your son? Because in my view, verse 5, his son is not carrying his own load, back to what Rob was saying. This is really hard, man. I mean, I, you know, these are, I have no idea what it would be like to have that kind of a situation in your family. I do not know no. what I would do. Jim? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I work with these kind of people, and can, if he's going to do that, he has to condition having a sponsor and working a program. Those two things are an absolute minimum, or he's got to hit rock bottom. If you don't do that, um, it's all – I've I've wasted a lot of money and time learning that lesson and yeah. getting over time. So uh, that would be my advice is to say that make that a condition. I don't know if he'd enforce it, but yeah, that's what will I work. think that that will be the challenge to to enforce it. But yes, part of the challenge with my friend also uh, Russ and everybody else is number one, he did not talk to his wife about this. He just Oops. told her this is what he's going to do. Number two, he did not seek the counsel of other people. He's been dealing with, as I said, uh, without getting any more detail. I have to be careful to tell too much detail here. But my, the reason I'm saying all this in this context is when you read a verse like each one has spared his own load, there's that issue of personal responsibility for the decisions you're making and what you're doing. And so then you have to ask when someone you really care about, someone you love, even a child or whatever the relation might be. That phrase that Dobson used to live, used to use, what's tough love look like? And Russ, you're right. But if this guy has, I'm, I'm telling you, this guy, this 46-year-old son of my friend, this guy's been through all of those things. He's been in halfway houses. He's been in all kinds of situations where he's supposed to be accountable to someone. And he basically, bottom line, he won't do it for any extended period of time. He goes back to his old, old uh, habits. So I'm uh, I'm really concerned about one my friend's marriage because as I mentioned he did not tell his wife he didn't talk to his wife and he didn't even say honey what do you think about this idea he just announced he was going to do it so already uh, so anyway this is very yeah, difficult I'll pick him up and bring him this Bible study <laughs> I don't mind if you do that okay well, I don't think he'll come but uh, yeah. anyway. Now, let's move into a much – I didn't do anything. I don't know what that noise was. Let's move into a much easier topic to talk about, the revolutionary idea in the early church of free will giving. Now, everybody wants to leave. You've got appointments, don't you? you, you. So I, I only have 10 minutes, so we'll quickly get through this. But this is always, oh, no, I don't want to talk about this. It's like when a pastor gives a message on stewardship, you know, you, you leave. But honestly, men, this, this was a radical, a radical idea as the church's birth. Not tithing to the temple. Because if you go back and read the law, every Jew is supposed to give actually the total amount. Was a twenty-two percent. Okay. Something's happening here. I don't know what it is, but Paul is not talking about that. Okay. 
Paul lays out, and Paul's not especially when he does the New Testament, lays out free will giving. Not where legalistically, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, or you're not in favor of God. Look what he says. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not marked. For everyone sows, that will also reap. For the one who sows in his own flesh, when his flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows in the spirit, or with the spirit, or to the spirit, will from the spirit reap eternal life. I want to stop there. The point Paul is making is... Compared to what the Judaizers were saying and what the Jewish law had said, mandatory, obligatory tithing plus the additional 12%, which made 22%, that's not what we're doing. Here's the ministry parameter. As you are ministered to, support. As your church ministers to you, support. As you are as you are as you are ministered to by someone expositing the word of God, support. And so Paul is laying out a remarkably revolutionary idea that no one else in the ancient world was talking about. Free will giving. And he adds an additional thought proportionate giving. I'm sorry, I forgot my black pen, so it's green. <laughs> Which is appropriate. Money's green, by the way. Free will and proportionate giving. In, in, in the law, and in virtually every other civilization in the ancient world, you were given an amount, you were obligated to do it, or you'd be in trouble. That is not what the church is doing. The church of Jesus Christ, and Paul's the main one who does this, he says, giving is free will. Nobody is going to be standing over your head with the sword of Damocles saying, give, 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 give. It's free will. But it's proportionate. As God blesses, you share more. And that's something that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's the major chapter on that. This is, this is so liberating. So instead of, instead of motivating people by guilt and shame, you allow the Holy Spirit to motivate them. And as God blesses, they bless others. As God blesses financially, spiritually, in every other way, you then bless others. But nobody is going to say to you, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. And by the way, here's the percentage or here's the dollar amount. And if you don't do it, God is really displeased with you. Nowhere do you see that. Nowhere. So it's a free will, proportionate methodology for giving. And honestly, men, this was absolutely revolutionary in the ancient world. And over the history of the church, now, unfortunately, as the church becomes more institutionalized, there is this obligatory message that starts to get sent. And even in, as you get into the Protestant uh, churches, particularly in the 19th century, they, the Presbyterians were really well known for this. Um, you come to church, you, you pay for your seat. Abraham Lincoln went to Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and you can go and see it if you ever go there. Church is still standing. You see, you see the, the pew that Lincoln bought. 
every year. He paid a certain amount to be able to sit there. And if you ever go to to uh, uh, to England near Oxford University, where C.S. Lewis went to church, you see, and I've seen that, you see the, the pew that C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney and others, they bought that. They paid for that. Every year they paid it to the end, and that's where he could sit. So every Sunday you sat there because this is my pew. And if somebody comes and sits, you know, they can't sit there. That's your pew. You pay for it. That is not in the New Testament. That's not free will. It's not proportionate. The church is saying, you want to sit here? You got to pay for it. That's terrible. All Paul is saying is, as you are blessed, you bless others. That's it. And he makes it, he makes it, Don't God's not going to be mocked. What you sow, you reap. Jesus talks about it in this way. Where your heart is is where your treasure is. And if your heart is right with God, then your treasure, which God owns everything anyway. He, you don't own anything. He's stewarding you with resources. He owns it. But he's saying to you, be a good steward of it. And if you're a good steward of it, and, and you, you manage this well, I will bless you. And as I bless you, my expectation is that you're going to bless others. That became, just, and Randy Alcorn wrote a marvelous little book called The Treasure Principle. So it's one of the little books about this big, The Treasure Principle. It's a marvelous little book. And what Randy, he takes that words of Jesus. Where your heart is, there's your treasure. And he says, our motivation should be in giving is, as I'm blessed, I want to bless others because this is what the Lord Jesus wants me to do. My treasure is his. He stewarded it to me. I manage it well. He blesses and I bless others. The treasure principle. Instead of, and he says, you can't mock God in this issue. Because God stewarded it to you. He expects you to manage it well. He expects then that he will bless you. And once he blesses you, he expects you, without setting monetary numbers, percentage numbers, rigorously obligatory, he will free will give. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9 about the joy of giving in the Lord's name. I'm almost done. Everybody's sitting here like living statues. Verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. So a general principle. The general principle is don't grow weary in doing good. It's amazing. I mean, you go weary and doing all kinds of things. Don't grow weary. and Don't give up. Because eternally, God notices. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. Kind of a closing principle. Serve others. Do good to others. Especially. Our life, our lives, every one of you in this room is like that. Our lives are a series of concentric circles. The inner circle is your family. You, I mean, your nuclear family. It's almost all of us, our kids are gone from our house. Then the next concentric circle is our extended family. The next concentric church, uh, circle is our church, the household of faith. The next concentric circle is our neighborhood. The next concentric circle is our city. You see what I'm saying? What does he just say? Your priority 
is your family and your household of faith. That's why, at least I think you, we should say this, our first priority in terms of our stewardship is our church. Doesn't mean we aren't sharing our resources with others, but that's our first priority, the household of faith. And so Paul is just he's just laying out some very broad-based principles about the stewardship of the material things God gives us and how we use them. Okay. I know you want me to leave it, so I'm ready to leave it. Okay. Now the conclusion. Four minutes. I don't know if we can do this. All right, Glenn ordered me to do it. See, verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, most expositors believe Paul took the stylus from his amanuensis, his secretary, and wrote it. And he would have used large letters that would stump you. Well, that's probably his thorn in the flesh was his eye and an eye problem. I don't know if that's true. But he's writing it. Now, he says something here. It's a final, important warning about the Judaizers. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, not only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cause of Christ, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in the flesh. So he reminds them of three characteristics of the Judaizers. Now, just quickly, first of all, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. First motivation is what? They make a good impression. They want to look good. Second, they do what they're doing to avoid persecution. They avoid persecution by what they're teaching and what they're saying. And thirdly, they want to boast about you. Look at all the people we have won to our cause. So he is zeroing in one more time, as he said at the beginning of this book, he's zeroing in again. These people, Judaizer, the term we gave them, these people represent another gospel, heteron, another gospel. And their motivations are not what I just talked about. Paul is Paul, first ten verses. Their motivation is deceptive, duplicitous, and evil. And so he then concludes, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says this over and over and over again in his letters. One thing I boast about, the cross. Nothing else. It's a cross. Now, verse 15, this had a rock the Jewish world the first century. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. Again, reminder about how sunset was to the Judaizers. Circumcision is irrelevant. What's important is the new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17. If any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. So that's, He's just saying that. And then he adds something else which has created 2,000 years of controversy. Verse 16, as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The rule of the new creation. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It certainly seems that Paul was talking about two groups of people here. 
those who walk by the rule of the new creation and the Israel of God, those Jewish people who have refused to follow the Judaizers, have forsaken and have experienced the fulfillment of Jesus Christ the Messiah, two groups. Every time in the New Testament, 65 times in the New Testament, Israel is used. And every single time, it's referring to the Jews. Because you see what some people are millennialists, particularly, and those who believe that God is done with Israel will translate this, and all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. That's a very unusual translation of that Greek word, and I think Paul's talking about two groups of people, as he usually does. The church, abiding by the new creation, and the Jews, will put their faith in Jesus' Messiah. Two separate groups. Two separate groups. The church and Israel. Church and Israel. They're not the same. God has a destiny and plan for both. This recapitulation idea is not really valid. And so he closes out a letter for not, not for now on on from now on let no one cause any trouble, for I bear in my mark body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, sisters, amen. So he just uh He's just saying, you know, I, I, I've suffered so much for Jesus. Second Corinthians 11 and 12 tells us the details. But that's what's important. I don't care what other people say about me. I don't care if people cause me trouble. I bear the marks of Jesus. We don't get to say this very often at this class, but we just finished a book. <laughs> I rushed through these last verses. I hope I didn't rush too, too much, but uh, it's nice. Now, tomorrow... I should say next Wednesday. We're going to start the book of James. We have done a, a block of material in James chapter 2, verse 14, following we were contrasting justification by faith, justification by works. Next week, we're going to start a very detailed exposition. You might take a look at those notes that we sent out a while back just to review some of the introductory material. We want to talk about who is this James, when did he write it, What's the importance of the book? Whom is he writing to? I'm going to cover those things and we'll dig right into the book. Father, we thank you for our study here in the book of Galatians. It's one of the most important uh, books in the New Testament. It summarizes so much about the Christian faith theologically, practically, experientially, and spiritually. We're very grateful that we've had a chance to study it. I pray that it will just be pressed upon our mind by the Spirit, that we are being transformed into very different people. We're part of a new creation. You know, we got dismiss us with your blessing, Lord, as we are separate ways. May we represent you well in your Son's name. Amen.